City Church Podcast, your home for the latest sermons and audio updates from City Church St. Petersburg. We meet each Sunday at 1030 a.m. at 1211 1st Avenue North on the third floor. So Friday evening, my wife and I sat down and we put the kids to bed. We kind of fell onto the couch after a long work week and said, okay, what are we going to watch? We fire up the streaming device and start flipping through. And as we flipped through, we saw a movie. Uh, that looked like it would be a great end-of-the-week, turn-your-brain-off sort of comedy. It had Matt Damon in it. It was a comedy. It had Jason Sudeikis. It had Kristen Wiig. I mean, how... Yeah, okay. With this cast like this, we're, we're going somewhere. This is going to be great. Don't have to pay to rent it. It's free on one of the streaming services. So we fire this movie up. It was not a comedy. At all. Jason Sudeikis was in the movie for literally two scenes. Kristen Wiig was in the movie for maybe the first 10, 15 minutes. And instead of being a comedy, this movie is this serious, thoughtful examination of which is more important and significant, sort of the good of the community or your own personal love. It sort of pits this idea of if you could get on Noah's Ark, but the person who you love didn't, want to get on the ark, what would you do? It was, you know, it's heart-wrenching, it was thoughtful, it was engaging, and it was not at all what I expected on Friday night when I sat down to relax and turn my brain off for the rest of the week. Not, a, not exactly what I thought was coming. It was a surprise. As we come to Christmas season, we are going to be looking at something else in the Christmas story that is equally surprising, that is equally a turn of events that we would not expect. What we're going to be doing is looking at the genealogy of Jesus. Fun, right? And not only that, but we're only going to be looking at four strange details from the genealogy of Jesus. Because the genealogy of Jesus is pretty straightforward. It's a lot of begats. But there are four times that this series of, and Salmon begat Boaz, and Boaz begat Jesse, there's four times that that sort of rhythm is interrupted. And every time that that rhythm of the genealogy of Jesus and Matthew is interrupted, the reason it's interrupted is to point out one of the women in the line of Jesus. Now, if you and, you and I were writing this story, and we think back of the history of the Old Testament, the people that we know, or that we think may have been Jesus' great-great-grandmother, who would we pick to highlight on this list? Maybe Sarah, Abraham's wife, right? The one, she had faith, she conceived in her old age. That'd be a good one to point out for Jesus. Or what about, what about Leah, who went through so much hard times, who had to always have her sister around who was prettier than her. You know, what about Leah? That, that might be a good one to add. She, she's full of faith, right? No, what's really a shock and surprise about the genealogy of Jesus is the four women that are listed. The four women's names that are listed in Jesus' genealogy are Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. Some of those names you're familiar with. Some of those names you're probably not. One of them you might be familiar with is Rahab, 
especially if you put the moniker that everybody calls with her, right? We don't just call her Rahab. We all say Rahab the prostitute, right? That's how she is glossed, right? She is Rahab the prostitute. That's how we all know her. Bathsheba, we talked about a few months ago when we went through the story of David. You see, all of these women were outsiders, immigrants, victims, and sex workers. Or some combination of those things. And if you and I were writing the story of Jesus, we would probably not highlight a bunch of people outside of the kingdom of Israel who were immigrants, outsiders, sex workers, and crime victims, would we? And yet, Matthew is deliberate in doing that. Which begs the question, why? Why would Matthew include not the who's who of saints, but kind of whatever the opposite of that might be, in Jesus' genealogy. That is what we're going to look at over the next four weeks leading up to Christmas, of the next four weeks of Advent. And this week, we're going to talk about Tamar. But before we get to the story of Tamar, I, I need to tell you about something that's a detail uh, that's missed because it is completely foreign to our culture. It's this idea of leveret marriage, right? Most of you have no idea what that means. And even if I tell you the word leveret means husband's brother, your mind can't probably begin to comprehend yet where this is going. See, in ancient Israel, there were laws that if a brother, the oldest brother, died and didn't have any sons, that his wife would then be passed on to his next oldest brother and that they would um, have children together and that their son would be the replacement heir for the dead father. Let me, let me run through that again because it's sort of confusing and I'm, and I'm trying to be somewhat coy right, about this story. I'm trying to couch it in culturally like this is weird for us in our culture. Absolutely, right? So if the oldest son dies his younger brother would have a child with his widow, and that child would take the oldest brother's place as the heir of the family. This is significant to the story we're about to read, because this is the story of Tamar. And the reason why they did this was for a number of reasons. One, in the land of Israel... Your land was tied to who your father was. If you were of the tribe of Judah, you lived in the land that was from Judah. If you were from the tribe of Dan, you lived from the land that the tribe of Dan was from. And within that, if you were from the line of Perez, Perez lived over on those hills. And the children of Zerah lived over in that valley. And so by keeping these names, these lines alive, they preserved the tribal boundaries. But it wasn't just about land, and it wasn't just about, about line, it was also for the protection of these women. Because in most ancient cultures, widows were some of the poorest and most um, at-risk people, because there was no one to care for them. 
And so in the Israeli system, the the system of leveret marriage, they would have someone who would be caring for them, and they would have children that would be a part of a line that could protect them, that could make sure that they had a place to stay and live. I know that's an odd thing to go into the details of this sort of idea of leveret marriage, but it's really important for the story. And and the story is, um, let me be honest, one of the wildest stories in the Bible. Um, I'm glad that we don't have any um, younger middle-school-aged kids here this morning, uh, just because this is one that you might encourage them to skip over for a little bit. Um, because this, this story has all the makings of, a, of not a broadcast TV movie. This approaches the sort of cable-only type of thing. So here's what I want to do. I want to read this whole story to you. It's Genesis 38. It's got twists. It's got turns. I, I think you're going to enjoy it. So stand with me and let's hear God's word together. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. And he took her and went into her. And she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chezeb when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn. Her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be counted as his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. What he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord. And he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah, to the sheep shears. He and his friend Hira the Adulamite. When Tamar was told, your father is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garment and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to Anaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. So he turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come in to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come in to me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it, He said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and the staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her, he went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose, went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. 
When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And we asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who is at Anam on the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been there. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as, as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you didn't find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man whom these belong, I am pregnant. She said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Sheila, and he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore his name was called Perez. After his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. City Church, this is the word of God. Written nearly 3,000 years ago and intended for us this morning. You may be seated. Um, So that's a pretty wild story, right? Not a lot of things um, that you would expect to find in the Bible. It is um, detailed in ways that we don't expect details in the Bible. Um, And it is messed up on a level that most of us find to be a bit shocking. And you would think that maybe this is something that we would want to bury. Let's not talk about this part of the Bible. let's, Let's just hope that that falls out of our tradition. Let's move it to the side. But what does Matthew do? Matthew says, oh, by the way, I want you to know that Jesus' great-great-grandmother was Tamar. So the question comes to us. What's this about? And I think one of the things that we see in this text, the, the big thing that we see, is the idea that most of us, like Judah, are motivated by selfishness and self-preservation. That is our go-to motivation. And not only are we motivated by this sort of idea of selfishness, this idea of self-preservation, when we are confronted with our sin, our go-to is to self-righteously look at other people. And I want to show you how that plays out and what that means for us. At the heart of this story is the woman Tamar. Tamar was an outsider. She was not from inside the people of Israel. She was a Canaanite. And yet, for whatever reason, Judah decides that he is going to 
marry his oldest son to a Canaanite woman. Here's the problem. Tamar had the worst luck with men. Her first son, Ur, we're not told how he was wicked, but all we know was that God would have no more of it, and that God killed Ur. And then she's given to Onan. And the story of Onan is is probably more graphic than we would write uh, if we were to retell this story. However, what Onan is doing is significant. Because Onan is now the firstborn son. Onan is now the one that stands to inherit his father's line and his father's authority. Not only that, he knows that his father is in line, Judah is in line to inherit all the authority and wealth of Jacob, which Jacob was one of the richest men in the Middle East at the time. So Onan does a little bit of quick math and says, if Tamar gets pregnant and has a son, that son becomes the firstborn and I'm out of luck. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to make sure that doesn't happen. I'm going to make sure that she never gets pregnant. Why? Why was he doing this? Was he just a jerk? No. What what he was doing was being outwardly selfish, wasn't he? He didn't want to risk his spot in line. He didn't want to risk what he thought he deserved, what he thought he had coming. So you know what? I'm going to make sure that no baby gets between me and my money. So God says that he's not having any of that with Onan. And so he kills off Onan. Now, Tamar has had two husbands now die. And now there's a young man, probably about 16. And what does Judah say? Judah says, you, you know what? Let's, let's just wait a minute here. Let's, let's hit the pause button. And why don't you go home and I'll send for you when Sheila is old enough. I'll send for you. You can come back and you'll marry Sheila, but he's just a little young right now. Let's, let's wait. What we can see from the rest of the story and what we see from the narrator telling us is that, that Judah was lying to her. Judah had no intention of ever giving Sheila to marry this woman because it seemed like she was cursed, right? Ur marries her, dies. Onan marries her, dies. Sheila, mm-hmm. Judah does the quick math in his head and says, yeah, I think chances that this kid dies from that woman are high. So here's what we'll do. We'll send her back. But for a widow, who is not even really a widow, who still had a family that she was supposed to be taken care of by, to be sent home, was not only something that would have filled Tamar with shame, but would have put her at risk. You see, once the daughter was married off, the family was free from any responsibility to take care of her. And Judah says, yeah, but I don't want to. Okay? That's hard. That's a pain. And you seem like a bad luck charm. So he sins her away. So how does she respond to to her father-in-law kind of being not a great guy? 
Well, she does what most of us would have done, pretends to be a prostitute and seduces him. I mean, it's just the, the next logical extension of what you would do in this story. No, I mean, that is, that is off the wall. Like most of us, this is not a course of action that we would expect to take. This is not the course of action that we would expect Jesus' great, 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 great grandmother to take. And yet here we are. And here's the story of Tamar. So she seduces Judah. But the, now as we're thinking about this, there's a question that might be occurring to you in your mind, which is this. Is Tamar justified in seducing her father-in-law? Was that okay? The answer to that is, that's messy. That's a messy question, right? Because she was owed a son. She should have been taken care of by Judah and the family, but she wasn't. And he was lying to her, and he was never intending to give her to who should have been her husband. But what's interesting about this story is that Tamar seems intent on preserving the line that has come from Judah. Now remember, Tamar was a Canaanite, so it seems that her wanting to carry on this line that had come from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to Judah to Ur was something that was meaningful to her. It seems that in living in the household of Judah, that something had changed in her that put her in allegiance to God. And so, she pulls her scheme. But before we sort of get to that end of the story, I want to step back and look at this again through the eyes of Judah. Because what Judah's doing, while Onan was selfish in a very outward and visible way, Judah was being really selfish in a kind of sketchy way. He was acting a little bit like his dad. If you guys have been around for, for City Church for a long time, one of our first series was on the life of Jacob. One of the things we saw in the life of Jacob was that Jacob was an incredibly shady character. In fact, Jacob's name literally means shady. And Judah seems to learn some of those tricks from his dad. Because Judah begins to say, oh no, no, you should go home. What Judah is doing is the same thing as what Onan's doing. He's acting in self-preservation. He's acting selfishly. He just is smart enough to code it in the right sort of words. I mean, think about it. Through Judah, you go, Ur's dead. Onan's dead. Now I got my son Sheila. Why I named him Sheila, I don't know. But here we are. I've got my son Sheila. And if he marries this girl, the, the statistics say that 100% of men who are married to Tamar die. Right? The, the rate of Tamar killing people is 100%. Kind of like my son. So you know what? I'm going to protect my son. I'm going to protect my son so that he doesn't die. 
But his motivations were just as tainted as Onan. How many times do you and I use religious justification to keep ourselves comfortable? How many times do you and I decide that we're going to use nice religious reasoning, nice Bible-sounding reasoning to make sure that we stay comfortable, that we're not at risk for any harm, that we are secure? You see, more of us act like Judah than we care to admit. I I think about this a lot. We have uh, the church's Google Voice number. And it's listed on our website. And I, I will tell you, 90% of the time, if a call comes in on our Google Voice number, I send it immediately to voicemail. Because odds are, it's somebody that wants me to do something for them, or somebody that wants the church to give them something, usually financial. And I sort of go, well, I, you know, I'm, I'm doing sermon prep right now. I shouldn't pick this one. I'm I'm on my way to a meeting with somebody from the church, and this phone call might make take time and might make me a little bit late to that meeting. And I want to I want to be a good steward of this other person's time. So I'm going to send this call to voicemail. Listen to the voicemail once, delete it, and never come back to it. Now I'm, I'm going to do, because I'm looking out for the people of City Church, right? And I use. Religious language, I use religious self-justification because what's really going on in my heart is, I don't feel like dealing with that. What's really going on in my heart is, that's going to be hard and that's going to be messy and it's probably going to be complicated and I just don't want to right now. How many times do we avoid relationships because they're messy and hard? It's going to be complicated. How many times are we quick to self-justify and paper it over with religious language? I think we're more like Judah than we care to admit. You see, our culture teaches us. Our culture disciples us to be absolutely selfish. Culture in America... Culture in St. Petersburg says you need to look out for yourself. You need to look out for your interest and maybe if you're feeling really helpful, look out for the interest of your family. And if you do anything like that, it's great. And if anybody stands in the way of your interest, if anybody stays in the way of your getting what you want, throw them to the side. Cast that off and move on. It is the sentiment that is best described in the words that millennials will wake up with every morning, which is, let's get this bread. It's this idea of, let's wake up and make our money. Let's wake up, is what, what, what some of you from an older generation might recognize, is it's time to make the donuts, right? Let's get this bread, says, selfishly, I am going to do whatever I want to do to make sure that I get paid. And whether or not you recognize that phrase, you recognize that sentiment. 
Because we are all taught that we need to climb. We need to advance. We need to be, be growing. We need to have more money. We need to have a better job. We need to have a bigger 401k than we did last year. And anything short of that is detrimental. Anything less than a raise this year to next year is not great. We want to climb socially. We want to climb in our career. And what happens when you're the one who says something brutally honest at your job? We have a word for that oftentimes. That is career suicide. What happens when you decide to befriend the pariah of your community? The word for that is social suicide. And yet what is Christianity if not loving those who are the least loved? Caring for those who have the least care given to them. What is Christianity if it is not loving people like Tamar? Jesus' great-great-great-grandmother. You see, far too often, what you really care about is your reputation. What you really care about is your ends. What you really care about is how much you can make out of the situation or how this helps you socially advance. And when it comes to being kind, when it comes to showing love, when it comes to spending time with someone like Tamar, your response is, religiously, I have something else to do. When it comes time to make a difficult decision at work, someone else will do it. I, you, know, you know, I give money to the church, and so I don't want to put my, my giving to the church at risk. So I can't make this hard decision at work. And you self-justify. And you become self-righteous. Look, look at Judah in this story. What happens? Somebody comes to Judah and says, Hey, newsflash, Tamar is pregnant. And what does Judah say? Does Judah say, Oh, ooh, this is bad because I'm not exactly the most chaste person on the planet. Does Judah say, Ooh, Let's be judicious and hear all sides of this. No, Judah says, burn her down. Bring her to me, bring her to the gates, and we are going to burn her and that baby alive. Who is she to think that she can cheat on my family? She's promised to Sheila. Tamar has a very shrewd card up her sleeve when she sends him his staff which was carved with his family name on it. Sends him his signet that was rolled in wax to show that he was certifying that something was his. And she says, you know, you're right, and if you need to conduct the other half of the trial, <clears throat> which you do, the guy that you're looking for who got me pregnant was the guy who owns these. You can almost hear the dramatic music, right? And the sort of law and order, dun-dun moment as she pulls out Judah's staff and Judah's signet. The beauty of this story is what happens next. Because what happens next is different. You and I, when we are confronted with our sin, tend to self-righteous up. 
tend to go, yes, but I'm not as bad as that person. Yes, look at those sinners over there. At least I'm not like them. That's what our hearts tend to do. But what does Judah do in the face of being confronted with his shameful sin, being caught in adultery, and implicitly being caught in the lie of sending her away in the first place? What does he do? Judah repents. Judah says, oh, yes. She is more righteous than I am. She is more righteous than I am. He repents not only of the sin that he can see, but he says, not only am I repenting of sleeping with her, which I shouldn't have done, but also of sending her away. You see, nobody could see Judah's motivation in sending her away. Just like I can't see your motivation, and you can't see my motivation. When I send a call to voicemail from the church line, you can't see whether that's because I'm actually on the phone with somebody else, I'm actually in the middle of a meeting, or I just don't want to deal with it, don't feel like it, it's too bothersome to me, it's messy. You can't see that, but you know what? I know that. You know your motives. And Judah not only repents of the things that everyone in his community can see, but he repents of the things that everyone in his community can't see. His motivations. Judah's repentance is real. It is serious. And what's fascinating in this story is that Judah remains in the line of Jesus. Because Tamar's children, Perez and Zerah, become a part of the line of Jesus. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, welcome to City Church. (laughs) But even if you are here and you're a Christian, you may not have been a Christian for a long time, or maybe you're coming back to your faith. If I were you, my head would be spinning. Even if you've been a Christian for a long time, you read this story, you walk through it, your head is probably spinning. Why? What are we supposed to get from this story? Genuinely. Guys, this is messed up on a lot of levels. But this is just the same sort of mess that Jesus enters into. These, Judah, Tamar, are the sort of people that Jesus came to save. It's interesting in the story that we have both the powerful in Judah and the powerless in Tamar. That no matter what side of that spectrum, whether we are those who have been hurt and abandoned by those who should have loved us, or whether that we are those who have done the hurt and abandoning ourselves, you're probably a mixture of both. You've got some Judah, you've got some Tamar, but for all of us, the way forward is the same way that Judah took. It is the way of repentance. Because ultimately what Judah and Onan's sins were, was they put themselves in front of the good of others. They put their own good in front of the good of others. And what do we see in Tamar's great-great-grandson, Jesus, if not somebody who put the good of others in front of his own? You see, when Jesus died for us, he was putting our needs ahead of his own. He was putting our needs ahead of his comfort He was putting our needs ahead of his peace. Jesus 
was wrecked on the cross so that you might be safe with God. Jesus was torn apart so that you might be made whole. Jesus, the one who was the all-powerful creator of the universe, became powerless and subjected to to His creation to be killed. The flesh that He took on in the incarnation that we celebrate during Advent was ripped and torn and tattered so that you and I might be brought back by repentance. And as this happens, there is a restoration. There are two codas to this story that I want to point out. First of all, when Joseph's brothers find him in Egypt, when they realize that he is not dead as they sold him into slavery, who is it that leads the charge of repentance in front of his brother Joseph? It's Judah. It's Judah. And not only that, but when Jacob is about to die, he calls his sons together and he blesses them. And I want to read you just for a second what the blessing that Jacob gives to Judah after this very public failure is. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down and crouched as a lion, as a lioness who dares rouse him. The scepter, the staff, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of all peoples, binding his foal to the vine, his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vestures in the blood of grapes. See, Judah's sins do not disqualify him from being a part of what God is doing. It is his repentance that brings him back into the fold. Because God will always respond to our repentance. Judah was no better than his brothers. In fact, Judah, in a lot of cases, was much worse than his brothers. But it is his repentance that changes things. And that same thing is true of your life and mine. Even in messed up situations like this of Jesus' great-great-grandmother. Let's pray.